everyone. I'm Emily Chang, and this is Bloomberg Studio 1.0. My guests this week are two of Silicon Valley's most prolific angel investors who are also kind of under the radar, but they have made some of the smartest bets in tech history. And they just so happen to be identical twins. Ali and Hadi Partovi grew up in wartime Iran, teaching themselves how to code on a Commodore 64. After a perhaps life-saving break from the U.S. immigration system, they moved to the New York suburbs and realized the quintessential American dream. They graduated from Harvard and landed tech jobs in Silicon Valley, eventually striking startup gold in companies that sold to Microsoft and MySpace. They've since backed companies like Facebook, Dropbox, and Uber, and they're now focused on democratizing the opportunity that drove their own success with Code.org, a nonprofit that aims to bring coding to classrooms everywhere. Joining me today on Bloomberg Studio 1.0, Hadi and Ali Partovi, co-founders of Code.org. I'm used to interviewing you guys separately, but it is a pleasure to have you here together. I'm curious, what was it like growing up as the brothers Partovi? It's just really wonderful to be a twin. So I always felt like I had something amazing that other people didn't have because I had a best friend that I could trust with anything and also somebody that I could look up to and try to be as good as him. And you're identical twins, right? We're identical. Yeah. So how are you similar and how are you different? We're similar in being competitive and driven and our backgrounds just in terms of our careers are incredibly similar in terms of we're both Harvard computer science majors. We're the only set of twins to both sell companies to Microsoft and a lot of the things we've done are similar. I think our differences are uh, I guess part of what makes us unique, I think I'm more of a stress case and my brother's more easygoing a little bit comparatively. That might be true, yeah. You were born in Tehran. You were six years old when the Iran-Iraq war broke out. What was living through that like? It was pretty horrific. My childhood, I remember just feeling scared almost all the time, either scared of our neighborhood being bombed, which frequently was. And also I remember always being worried that something bad would happen to my parents, like that I would come home from school and wouldn't have my parents there anymore. There was a period during the bombardment when basically we'd spend the nights in our basement like holding our ears because our neighborhood was actually being bombed. So that was also, you know, pretty rough. I will say though, having gotten out of that, it's certainly something that makes me feel much stronger because I feel like I can take on anything. And you know, if you can survive that, it makes day-to-day -day problems today seem much, uh, much easier to, uh, to deal with. How did your parents communicate to you what was going on? One of the things I remember is my dad tried to make it seem like the bombardment wasn't actually our neighborhood. <laughs> He'd say how these planes are breaking the sound barrier so you can hear them from hundreds of miles away. And he would then wake up in the mornings to go to the roof to see whose homes were still standing. What did your parents do? My dad was the founding professor of what is now Sharif University, the main technology university in the country. Uh, and our mom was actually, uh, she had a master's in computer scientists, and she was a systems analyst. Uh, but once the revolution happened, it was really hard to keep a job. Uh, women were just so oppressed at that time. And in the midst of this, is that when you learned to code? Yeah, when we were 10 years old. In Iran? Yeah, nine years old, actually. Our dad, he's a physicist, so he had gone to a physics conference and brought back a Commodore 64. This was, I guess, 1981 or so. No games, no software, just like a couple of books on how to program in BASIC. And he spent maybe the first hour or two with us getting us started. And then we just, you know, 
read the books and you know basically taught each other uh, how to do it. And he spent a lot of time then giving us ideas for what one could create. You know, a big part of learning computer programming is actually the imagination part of imagining what you might do and then kind of, you know, feeling the confidence that it's possible and then just go out and tackle it. Was there like a sort of moment where you thought, oh, this is what I want to do, or did that come later? Well, one great thing about computer programming in Iran during a war was that it really was an escape. All of our family had left Iran to come to the United States, so we were alone without family other than our mom and dad. When you're programming a computer, you can just sort of close that all out and, and create whatever you want. So you moved to the United States when you were 11? Yeah. Leaving a country like Iran isn't, uh, for starters, is not that easy, especially during a war. Uh, so it took a long time to get the paperwork done and so on to be able to get out. So we actually first uh, moved to Europe and we then were traveling around for a whole summer trying to find a U.S. embassy who would grant us visas to get to, uh, to be able to enter the United States. And I think we had reached the point where one more rejection and it would have been like, you can never come to the U.S. And so I remember we were, uh, we had rented an apartment in Italy and we were, um, we were there and the phone rang and, uh, and my mom picked it up. Thank God it was our mom and not our dad. Um, so our mom picked it up and it was a woman on the other end of the line uh, informing her that we've been rejected. And so my mom, who is like many Iranian women, very fiery and fearless, I mean, she started sobbing and saying, this is just not fair. And if we have to go back, her sons would probably die in the war. And asked the woman, can you please tell the head of the consulate to give us another chance? And the woman on the other side said, actually, I am the head of the consulate. And, um, and so somehow they had a connection. And so she agreed to ask the State Department to make a special exception for us. And so we found out a few days later that we'd been accepted. So we were this close to, uh, to never coming here. And I would say, um, I mean, ever since then, I've always felt the world would be a much happier place if there were more women in leadership positions. If you want to get something done, get a mother on it. She exactly. will get it done. Iran was on a list of travel ban countries. What is it like being an Iranian immigrant in the age of President Trump? It was difficult, but at least we made it. Uh, and it would have been completely impossible today uh, we just we wouldn't have even applied. We would have been banned. I think being an immigrant from any country is difficult in a time when one group is being singled out for being banned. And you know, so much of what makes America what it is is th that we are a land of immigrants. But especially for ourselves, you know, knowing how different our lives would have been if we were trying to make the same thing happen right now is is particularly difficult. Your family is quite successful. Dara Khosrowshahi, the CEO of Uber, is your cousin. One of your cousins also founded the AI company Nirvana Systems, which was yeah. bought by Intel. Should that be a lesson to President Trump? There's a lot of Iranian immigrants in, that are successful in tech. I mean, our family as well, obviously, but there's many others, like the founder of Dropbox or the founder of eBay. Immigrants have created many of the greatest companies and created many of the largest numbers of jobs in this country. And part of why I started Code.org is to show that an immigrant can give back opportunity and, and create opportunity in, in the country that's, you know, that seems like it's lacking it. You both ended up at Harvard studying computer science. How did you get there and what happened next? We worked really, really hard in high school to get grades good enough to, to get accepted into Harvard. And we were lucky that the, they provided financial aid. Uh, and we also spent all of our summers in high school working as computer programmers to help save money to help pay for college. And 
you know, what happened next, graduating in 1994 at the dawn of the internet was just such a wonderful time to be in tech and already sort of fully knowledgeable. This is when companies were, all the companies that are famous today were, were basically started over the next 10 years. So, so much of our career got shaped by being, I think, at the right place at the right time with, with a network of people who are, who are now many of the greatest folks in tech. So you started working at Microsoft and you started working at Oracle. Yeah. This was as the dot-com boom was hitting fever pitch. What was that like? Heidi's career was on a much better trajectory than mine. So within two years after graduation, I had actually left Oracle and I joined a startup that was not doing very well and was fairly doomed. Meanwhile, Hadi was, um, had become, had joined the Internet Explorer team, which was the Microsoft browser. He was essentially, for a 23-year-old, in one of the most exciting possible jobs in the whole tech industry. And didn't you try to convince Microsoft to do search, and they didn't? So at the time, this is 1998, search advertising didn't exist. Uh, you know, if you, if you went to the top search engines, such as Yahoo, it was big banner advertising. And we were trying to convince all those companies as well as Microsoft that the real way to monetize search is to put text-based ads that are keyword targeted and and to sell them on an auction basis which is exactly what AdWords is today uh, except we called it keywords turns out it just wasn't uh, wasn't something Microsoft was prepared to really invest in at the time did you ever tell Bill Gates or Steve Ballmer I told you so <laughs> Ali wrote a letter when he resigned from Microsoft saying you know to Steve saying, this is really great. Uh, I had a great experience here. Thank you. You know, very kind and generous. But as I leave, you should keep your eyes on this new startup called Google. They have really, really great potential. And it was was a very diplomatically worded email, uh, but very prescient as well. You're listening to my conversation with Hadi and Ali Partovi, co-founders of Code.org. Up next, we hear some fascinating stories about the brothers' early and sometimes later investments in some of tech's biggest companies, including Facebook, Dropbox, and Uber. I'm Emily Chang. You're listening to Bloomberg Studio 1.0. You do have possibly the most impressive list of angel investments of anyone, including Facebook, Airbnb, Uber, Dropbox, Zappos. How did you get into all those deals? I think investing in good people is really the, the most important thing. And every investor talks about investing in good people. We take it a lot more seriously. Uh, and the way I mean that is we will invest in something that we think is a bad idea if we like the person. You also invested in Mark Zuckerberg. How did that happen? We were lucky to get introduced from a, via a number of routes when Facebook was still eight or nine people. And that was just an unbelievable thing to get to see this company at, at that early stage. A lot of people at that time were saying, you know, why are you, in, why are you even involved in this company? I, I remember my wife uh, saying at the time, you know, why are, are you trying to get into fraternity parties or something? Because <laughs> Facebook at that time was just in about 100 colleges, and it was kind of a way for college students to m- meet each other and flirt. But I remember from the very first time I met Mark, my immediate reaction was that this guy is more like Bill Gates than anybody else I've met. Uh, and he immediately reminded me of, of every time I'd interacted with Bill at Microsoft. And I just saw that the level of vision he had in terms of where he wanted to take it was so much more than the fraternity sort of angle. Dropbox story is the one that is my favorite because it captures several parts of what Hadi and I brought together um, to investing. So there was a, um, 
senior at MIT that Hadi already knew from, uh, from having had him as an intern. His name is McKinday. Uh, we were trying to recruit him to a small startup, and McKinday uh, had his eyes set on a bigger company because he was just graduating from college. We referred him to go to Facebook, which by then was maybe 200 people or so. But Hadi asked him, can you tell us who the smartest kids in your class at MIT are? And he said, well, everyone knows this guy, Arash Ferdosi, but he's not going to join your startup either because he has his own new company. We then learned about Arash's startup, which was Dropbox, and Arash and Drew, were it was just a, a two-person company. At this point, we had them fly out to the West Coast and gave them coding tests to assess how good of computer programmers they actually are. And this is something that's part of our routine for all investments. Basically, if we're investing in a company, we won't do it unless the technical founder can pass a rigorous technical interview. And so based on evaluating Drew Houston's coding skills, um, we you know, decided to invest in Dropbox. And we then spent the next several years, even until quite recently, helping Dropbox recruit engineers. So what about Uber? Uber, we weren't as early in. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I wish we'd been earlier investors in Uber because so many of our folks in our network were early investors in Uber. Getting into a later stage investment, not everyone has access. And part of what's enabled us to have access to investments like that. It's not just based on who we know, it's because we've developed a reputation for helping companies like Facebook or Dropbox with recruiting. When you were watching from the outside at Uber, what do you think went wrong there? It's really hard to manage hypergrowth, and I think there was a culture of, you know, no holds barred approach to competitiveness. Uh, and I think there's some holds that you should bar. <laughs> the, you know, there's some lines that you should not cross. It's really hard for a company at large to know which laws are we paying attention to, which laws are we okay breaking, who gets to decide that. As you're going through hypergrowth at the same time, you just get into this cultural situation where anything kind of goes. Uh, and I think things got a little bit out of control. Do you think at this late stage that Dara Khosrowshahi, who also happens to be your cousin, can turn things around? I do. It's still an incredibly healthy business at its core. I mean, consider the tumult that's happened where the entire senior staff was axed, yet did anyone miss a ride? Did we hear any reports about cars stopping, you know, drivers, you know, not picking up their passengers? Dara um, is such a, he's just a prince among men. He's just somebody that inherently, just because of the um, the humility and the incredible respect that his personal character brings, people want to see him succeed. The sheer goodness of his character is enough to change uh, some of the things, starting with changing the culture, as Hadi mentioned, and changing the way other people interact with the company. That's co-founders of Code.org, Hadi and Ali Partovi. Up next, we unpack exactly how their nonprofit is bringing computer science to classrooms everywhere and encouraging more young girls to learn how to code. And we hear about Ollie's latest venture, NEO, a VC fund that identifies and invests in the tech leaders of tomorrow. I'm Emily Chang. You're listening to Bloomberg Studio 1.0. There's something missing from your stories about the amazing people in your network and the people you funded, and that is women. And I'm curious how you would describe the role of women in those early days of the dot-com boom and how you've seen that evolve or not evolve, given that the numbers really haven't changed. 
the lack of women in tech is something that I think bothers everybody. It bothers women and men alike. Uh, it's very personal to us. Just our mom was a she had a master's in computer science. Uh, so I grew up with a mom who was a woman in tech. A large part of why I, Ali and I started Code.org was to help fix the diversity issue, starting with the pipeline. And the diversity problems in tech obviously are about the culture and the companies, the promotion paths, but also about the pipeline. If, if, the, if the graduating population is 80% white and male, white and Asian males, it's hard to have a balanced workforce when the students coming into the field are so imbalanced. What we've done at Code.org has completely changed the, the high school and, and, and the, the K through 12 picture. We start teaching computer science using Code.org's uh, materials as early as kindergarten or elementary school. The Code.org student base now is 25 million students, which is much larger than the software engineering population of the United States, and it's 45% girls. So there's almost 12 million girls coding on Code.org. So how did you do that? The answer to that really is teachers. I mean, we did a lot of great things at Code.org, but the key to getting US education to adopt computer science has been the American teacher. If we want to reach every student, especially the students who are least likely to have opportunity, they're not going to summer camps and after school clubs. They're, you know, we need to reach them in school. Code.org's entire curriculum and platform is free. It's on the web. And in fact, a school could say, they could assign it as homework if they don't have time in their schedule or enough computers in the classroom. But it's still much easier for kids to do it if they feel like it's a standard part of school. You know, everyone learns fractions, whether they like it or not. And so when a school teaches it, it gives it a sense of social universality that you can't uh, accomplish necessarily at home. How do you recruit teachers when those teachers could be making a lot of money at Google or Facebook? So we don't get computer scientists to become teachers. We get teachers to learn computer science. So we're by far one of the largest workforce retraining operations in America now. And how are you convincing schools who are already have resources strapped? How do you convince schools the to teachers, add these teachers in these courses? The teachers are convincing their school. That's what is awesome So they already work it. at these schools? The teachers are already in the school. It's a math teacher, a history teacher, English teacher, science teacher. They see the Code.org materials and they realize our school should be doing this. The, the teacher at Oakland who decided, why isn't Oakland teaching computer science? And the first teacher there, her name was Claire, she taught herself computer science on her own and started a class. But then she realized, I want this to be in every school in Oakland. So she came to Code.org and asked, can you help? And we said, yeah, we will train one teacher in every single school in the, in the district. Two years later, every single school in Oakland teaches computer science. So what are the challenges that still remain? Changing the school system is hard. <laughs> um, funding is hard as well. And Code.org is a nonprofit. We're a nonprofit. Uh, and I should say, we're funded by the same tech companies that, that you know, I believe should be fixing a lot of the gender issues in tech, and we're part of the solution, I believe. So I think those same companies should get credit for the work that we do. So Amazon, Facebook, and especially Microsoft, those are our three largest donors. Uh, and when we're bringing 12 million girls into this field, those companies should get the, the credit for funding an operation like this. Eric Roberts, longtime computer science professor at Stanford, wrote a paper where he talked about uh, the capacity collapse in the ability to handle computer science students. So in 1984, the max out, everybody's so excited about studying computer science. Schools can't accommodate, so they start turning students away, and actually the number of computer science degrees starts dropping. It happened again in the dot-com boom, and he warns that 
we're facing another potential capacity collapse today because so many people are interested, but again, the that's happening can't right now. Accommodate. At University of Washington, you know, I live in Seattle. The, the university turns away three quarters of the students trying to get into computer science. It's not based on their gender, but it is based on their grades, which, uh, you know, I think everybody should have a chance to learn. But the university system really needs to recognize that if it can't teach the, the most important subject that students want to learn, then the university, the university system either needs to change or students will go learn some other way. This is a really, really big problem for our country, and it's one of the problems that I know Code.org is in some ways exacerbating the problem because <laughs> we're bringing 25 million students who are going to be interested in this field. So the university system already faces a problem and it's going to get worse, and it will absolutely need to adapt to that demand. My concern is that it will hurt women again because if you're filtering students based on experience and based on their grades when traditionally not Boys necessarily. have had so the computer in it their could. room. It could, but Carnegie Mellon um, actually has a similar kind of situation where basically they have only so many spots for computer science and uh, you can't just elect to choose that major. You have to be admitted and apply. And they have basically by edict said that they're going to accept 50% female computer science applicants. So they're essentially going to give equal number of spots to uh, men and women. You and know, that might actually tilt things in favor of the women, potentially. Yeah. So. so if you are a parent right now, what should you be doing if you want your kids to have a chance in this field? The first thing I'd say is make sure if your kids are in school, make sure the school teaches computer science. Because mm -hmm. most of America's schools don't teach computer science. And most Americans don't think that the school system can change. But we've now shown at a massive scale of tens of thousands of schools that schools can change. And if parents ask the teacher, there's usually one teacher at the school who wants to see computer science taught at that school, and that teacher will pick up Code.org and start doing it. Uh, change happens at the local level. But the difference is the parents usually want to think, what should my kid do? And we like to tell them, ask, what can your school do? So let's talk about NEO. Yeah. NEO is your yes. new thing. Yes. It is a community of engineers. There's a venture arm attached to it. What is it? It's really focused on finding the tech leaders of tomorrow. So. Um, RM is to identify uh, future tech leaders as young as sophomores in college. So we identify, include them in the community, and invest in them. We've brought together this amazing spectrum of people um, that includes the you know, CTO of Microsoft, the you know, original CTO of Google, original CTO of Facebook, as well as these amazing people who created amazing things. So founders, the woman who founded TaskRabbit, for example, or the guy who invented photo tagging, or the guy who created iOS. All these people, not all of them are famous, um, but they've all contributed something amazing to the world of technology. And so we're, we're bringing them together with a pool of young people um, who've been curated and selected based on their talent and their promise. So how is it similar or different to something like Y Combinator? I'd say it's similar in the sort of youthful energy and in the belief of kind of unlimited possibility. Extremely different in that these are not founders with companies. Some of them are, some of them, and some of them might become future founders, but we're not incubating business ideas. We're just trying to find 10 or 15 of the best computer science students in the country and bring them into the community. For the young women and men, boys and girls out there who want to make it in Silicon Valley, be an entrepreneur, be an investor, be an engineer. What's your advice? My first and most important thing is just to believe in yourself. The tech industry is something that 
you can come from you know very humble beginnings and make it based on what's in your head and what's in your heart and hard work. Starting computer programming is like learning a sport or learning an instrument. Anybody can start and if they put time into it, they can become successful. I would add to that to say that even if you don't want to become a coder, learning computer science can help no matter what you want to do in tech. And in this day and age, everybody should have at least the basic background of computer science. It's easy and it's, it's a lot more fun than, than people imagine. And, and it's basic and open doors in any field, but especially in the tech industry. Hadi and Ali Partovi, thank you so much for joining us on Studio 1.0. Great to have you guys. Bloomberg Studio 1.0 is produced and edited by Kevin Hines. Our executive producer is Candy Cheng. Our managing editor is Danielle Culbertson. I'm Emily Chang, your host and executive producer. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.